The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, David Herbert Lawrence packed a lot of literature into his 44 years. And while he might be best known for novels like Lady Chatterley's Lover, Sons and Lovers, The Rainbow, and Women in Love, he wrote a lot more than that, essays, poetry, and short stories included. At the end of 2023, we looked at one of his most famous stories, Odor of Chrysanthemums. Today, we turn to one of his lesser-known works, Tickets, Please, which shows a different side of Lawrence, not the authoritative writer in serene command of his craft, but a hungrier side, an edgier side, a writer tapping into something surprising, but in its own way, inevitable. We'll hear that story and discuss it with our old friend Mike Palindrome today on The History of Literature. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Glad to be here with you today. Welcome to the podcast. So, D.H. Lawrence, born in 1885. Not to the manner born in any sense. He grew up among colliers, coal miners. His father was barely literate. He took his literary bent from his mother, who had at one time been a schoolteacher, but he wrote about what he knew. And this is the second of our stories to focus on the working class of these small towns dotting the English countryside. A train is at the heart of it, a train and the people who were working on that train, women in particular, who were called into duty to assist on the trains, while the men in the town had mostly been called off to war. One man has remained behind. His name is John Thomas. Good Lord, sometimes these Freudian writers are a little too on the nose. But anyway, that's his name. Lucky John Thomas. He's got his pick of the ladies who are excited to be out of their homes, working, enjoying some freedom. This story was published in 1918. So without further ado, let's bring out Mike, ask him some preliminary questions about the story, and then we'll hear the story then return for some discussion. With, oh, actually, wait, I nearly forgot. We're going to mix things around a bit today. Shuffle them. We will first of all hear from Myron Tooman and his choice for his last book. After we talk to Myron about his later in life return to literature and literary criticism, I asked him a special question. Okay, I'm joined now by Myron Tooman, author of numerous books of literary criticism, including The Sensitive Son and Don Juan and His Daughter. Myron, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Well, if it's going to be the last book, I thought about Samuel Richardson's lengthy novel, Clarissa. Oh, yeah. Because it's about, about 4,000 pages long. <laughs> and besides the fact that Soames is a great character, but Loveless is truly off the charts, crazy, wild. Richardson was uh, expunging so much of his hidden self through Loveless. Yeah. But I put that on the side. 
I'll say one word about my favorite literary work of all time, Tegenev's novella, First Love, oh. which I deal with in The uh, in the Sensitive Sun. It's such a beautiful story. I, I almost want to take it at the end and just read it again. It's, it's about a boy and a beautiful young woman and the boy's father. And what a love triangle. And it's just, it's so gorgeous. And I said, if I could write that or anyone could write that, why would they write anything else? But I'm going to put that aside and I want to talk here about something else I've fallen in love with recently, and that is the short fiction of D.H. Lawrence. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I want to get the collection, the collected short fiction for this new work I did on the Hidden Lawrence. I tried to read many of the stories, many of the short fictions. Lawrence died young, but he wrote constantly. It's just mind-boggling. Plays, travel literature, nonfiction. You know, Lawrence came to note primarily to F.R. Levis as the master novelist in the great tradition. Mm. And then more recently, Frances Wilson's biography just last year, she praises his nonfiction. Well, I guess I'm here right now to praise his short fiction. It's just, it's just marvelous. And I try to deal with a number of these stories in The Hidden Lawrence. His first great story, The Odor of Chrysanthemums. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time with that. A little bit about the daughters of the vicar, what story, The White Stocking. But there's one particular story called The Blind Man, which, uh, again, when you see how the characters relate to Lawrence's life, you know, I don't know whether you have to know Lawrence's life to understand the story or or if you understand the story, you actually learn something about Lawrence's life. I think it works both ways. Mm-hmm. But it's such a beautiful story. I've read three. Every time I read it, it gives me chills. Lawrence is trying to come to terms with some key aspect of himself. And what I know is there are dozens of other Lawrence stories that I haven't gotten a chance yet to read. Mm. So I'll take the book with me. And yep. There's short fiction. There's Lady Bird, a great short, The Princess, St. Mar about the horse. There's so much there. I'll be happy. Yeah. You found a way to get a nice mix of the tried and true and things you know you love and and yet still have some room for exploring something that'll be new to you. You'll have that for you right up until the very end. Yes, I will. Myron Tooman, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Okay, Jack. I appreciate it. It's been fun. The stories of D.H. Lawrence. The stories of D.H. Lawrence. Why is that? Not because they're beautiful, or not just because they're beautiful, but because they're strange, too. Lawrence is one of those figures like Dostoevsky and... William Blake, who have these depths to them. We burrow into their passions, exploring what they tried to tell us about what was inside them. Not because those innards are always refined and genteel, but because they feel so primitive and earthy, so fantastical sometimes. So visionary and ethereal in the case of Blake, and so tied down by agony in the case of Dostoevsky, and Lawrence, I think, is somewhere in between. So, let's hear from Mike, who will be with us for the next story. Tickets, please, by D.H. Lawrence. Okay, here we are, back again with our old friend Mike Palindrome, who is not a famous railway worker who broke hearts everywhere he went, although... He did do a stint as a bike messenger once. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. 
Thanks, Jack. So how many times did you get hit by cars when you were riding a bike through Manhattan as a courier? I remember a couple of incidents that sounded a, a bit, uh, you were kind of flirting with danger there. Um, Only once, and it was, <laughs> well, actually twice. But one time I don't count because I was trying to slip past the bus. Oh. I was pulling into a bus stop. Yeah. And so I avoided being hit by just falling into some garbage. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't really count that as a hit, as a crash. <laughs> and the other time was the car that did it knock you down? It, it was again a car was turning and I hit the car. Mm. I never actually, yeah, hitting a car is not the worst thing. Not, mm-hmm. not that I'm. I, I want people to become bike messengers because it is it is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess you're. You're, uh, were you under a lot of pressure or were you working for tips basically? Or I'm sure you had to, the more you delivered, the better, the better your things went for you, I suppose. It is. Uh, yeah, that's true. But I, I think at, at some point you, it's the thrill of making, you, you're constantly timing yourself. Uh, it's yeah. the thrill of beating, you know, a, a certain route by a couple of seconds, <laughs> which is absolutely perverse. I mean, that's. <laughs> It's just not the way you should be biking <laughs> in the city. Right. Okay. Well, we've got another D.H. Lawrence story today. And before we start talking about that, I've got a D.H. Lawrence quiz that I've set up for you. Mm, okay. uh, these questions are based on facts that I got from the website, interestingliterature.com. So are you ready? Yes. Okay. Number one, Lawrence's story, The Escaped Cock is about A, a collier who impregnates a local clergyman's younger sister, B, a train conductor who has an amorous dalliance with a postal worker, or C, Jesus Christ. Uh, I know it's C, because I, I, I read a very funny Lit Hub piece about it. Okay. So, I, but I didn't know it. Um, you know, three months ago. Yeah, right. Okay. (laughs) Okay, number two. To stimulate his imagination, Lawrence liked to A, hold his hand over a lit candle to feel pain, B, climb mulberry trees in the nude, or C, take laudanum, which he called Satan's syrup. Wow, I'm going to say C. Hmm. Good guess, but it is B, climb mulberry trees in the nude. Boy. (laughs) Which uh, I've never tried, but maybe that's why uh, I've never written uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover either, so (laughs) I shouldn't knock it. Okay, number three. Lawrence's last words were, A, I'm getting better, B, I'm about done here, or C, fuck it, fuck it all. I'll go with A. It is A. I'm getting better. <laughs> it's probably like 99% of people's last words. Yeah, right. <laughs> I should be getting out of this bed soon. Don't worry. And then uh, the Grim Reaper makes his appearance. Okay, so we discussed Odor of Chrysanthemums last time, which I actually found to be pretty dazzling. Today's story is shorter. I wouldn't call it a masterpiece, but it's still pretty interesting. And before we talk about that, I was actually going to have you read a story called Second Best, 
as well. I don't know if you looked at that at all, but I decided just to focus on these two instead. But second best is a, a kind of a strange story about two sisters, one older and one younger. And the younger one is baiting the older one into killing a mole. And yeah. then she, the older one talks to a would-be boyfriend about killing and whether he would like her to kill the mole, whether he'd like to know that she could do that. And it's kind of it's kind of sexual and kind of bizarre, but for me, I was more interested in the idea of the story, but the story itself didn't really get off the ground for me. So I don't know why that is. Maybe we've absorbed the concepts and it was sort of shocking in 1912, but it's the kind of thing that now you might see in an episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I, I didn't read that third story. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this story is pretty strange too. Tickets, please. Uh, published mm. in Strand Magazine in 1919. Anything our listeners should keep in mind before we listen to it? Only that I liked it more than The Order of Chrysanthemums. Ooh, okay. <laughs> That's good. Okay, so let's take a quick break, uh, hear the story, and then we'll come back with some analysis. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Tickets, please, by D.H. Lawrence. There is in the Midlands a single-line tramway system, which boldly leaves the county town and plunges off into the black industrial countryside uphill and down dale, through the long, ugly villages of workmen's houses, over canals and railways, past churches perched high and nobly over the smoke and shadows, through stark, grimy, cold little marketplaces, tilting away in a rush past cinemas and shops down to the hollow where the collieries are. Then up again, past a little rural church, under the ash trees, on in a rush to the terminus, the last little ugly place of industry, the cold little town that shivers on the edge of the wild, gloomy country beyond. There, the green and creamy-colored tram car seems to pause and purr with curious satisfaction. But in a few minutes, the clock on the turret of the Cooperative Wholesale Society's shops gives the time. Away it starts once more on the adventure. Again there are the reckless swoops downhill, bouncing the loops. Again the chilly weight in the hilltop marketplace. Again the breathless slithering round the precipitous drop under the church. Again the patient halts at the loops, waiting for the outcoming car, 
So on and on for two long hours, till at last the city looms beyond the fat gasworks. The narrow factories draw near. We are in the sordid streets of the great town. Once more we sidle to a standstill at our terminus, abashed by the great crimson and cream-colored city cars, but still perky, jaunty, somewhat daredevil, green as a jaunty sprig of parsley out of a black colliery garden. To ride on these cars is always an adventure. Since we are in wartime, the drivers are men unfit for active service, cripples and hunchbacks. So they have the spirit of the devil in them. The ride becomes a steeplechase. Hooray, we have leaped in a clear jump over the canal bridges. Now for the four-lane corner. With a shriek and a trail of sparks, we are clear again. To be sure, a tram often leaps the rails, but what matter? It sits in a ditch till other trams come to haul it out. It is quite common for a car, packed with one solid mass of living people, to come to a dead halt in the midst of unbroken blackness, the heart of nowhere on a dark night, and for the driver and the girl conductor to call, All get off! Car's on fire! Instead, however, of rushing out in a panic, the passengers stolidly reply, Get on! Get on! We're not coming out. We're stopping where we are. Push on, George! So till flames actually appear. The reason for this reluctance to dismount is that the nights are howlingly cold, black, and windswept, and a car is a haven of refuge. From village to village the miners travel, for a change of cinema, of girl, of pub. The trams are desperately packed. Who is going to risk himself in the black gulf outside to wait perhaps an hour for another tram, then to see the forlorn notice, depot only, because there is something wrong? or to greet a unit of three bright cars all so tight with people that they sail past with a howl of derision. Trams that pass in the night. This, the most dangerous tram service in England, as the authorities themselves declare with pride, is entirely conducted by girls and driven by rash young men, a little crippled, or by delicate young men, who creep forward in terror. The girls are fearless young hussies in their ugly blue uniform, skirts up to their knees, shapeless old peaked caps on their heads. They have all the sang-froid of an old non-commissioned officer. With a tram packed with howling colliers, roaring hymns downstairs, and a sort of antiphony of obscenities upstairs, the lasses are perfectly at their ease. They pounce on the youths who try to evade their ticket machine. They push off the men at the end of their distance. They are not going to be done in the eye, not they. They fear nobody, and everybody fears them. Hello, Annie. Hello, Ted. Oh, mind my corn, Miss Stone. It's my belief you've got a heart of stone, for you've trod on it again. You should keep it in your pocket, replies Miss Stone, and she goes sturdily upstairs in her high boots. Tickets, please. She is peremptory, suspicious, and ready to hit first. She can hold her own against ten thousand. The step of that tram car is her thermopylae. Therefore, there is a certain wild romance aboard these cars, and in the sturdy bosom of Annie herself. The time for soft romance is in the morning, between ten o'clock and one, when things are rather slack, that is, except market day and Saturday. Thus Annie has time to look about her. Then she often hops off her car and into a shop where she has spied something, while the driver chats in the main road. 
There is very good feeling between the girls and the drivers. Are they not companions in peril, shipments aboard this careering vessel of a tram car, forever rocking on the waves of a stormy land? Then, also during the easy hours, the inspectors are most in evidence. For some reason, everybody employed in this tram service is young. There are no gray heads. It would not do. Therefore, the inspectors are of the right age, and one, the chief, is also good-looking. See him stand on a wet, gloomy morning in his long oil skin, his peaked cap well down over his eyes, waiting to board a car. His face is ruddy, his small brown mustache is weathered, he has a faint, impudent smile. Fairly tall and agile, even in his waterproof, he springs aboard a car and greets Annie. Hello, Annie. Keeping the wet out? Trying to. There are only two people in the car. Inspecting is soon over. Then, for a long and impudent chat on the footboard, a good, easy, 12-mile chat. The inspector's name is John Thomas Rayner, always called John Thomas, except sometimes in malice, Cotty. His face sets in fury when he is addressed from a distance with this abbreviation. There is considerable scandal about John Thomas in half a dozen villages. He flirts with the girl conductors in the morning and walks out with them in the dark night when they leave their tram car at the depot. Of course, the girls quit the service frequently. Then he flirts and walks out with the newcomer, always providing she is sufficiently attractive and that she will consent to walk. It is remarkable, however, that most of the girls are quite comely. They are all young and this roving life aboard the car gives them a sailor's dash and recklessness. What matter how they behave when the ship is in port? Tomorrow they will be aboard again. Annie, however, was something of a tartar, and her sharp tongue had kept John Thomas at arm's length for many months. Perhaps, therefore, she liked him all the more, for he always came up smiling with impudence. She watched him vanquish one girl, then another. She could tell by the movement of his mouth and eyes when he flirted with her in the morning that he had been walking out with this lass or the other the night before. A fine cock-of-the-walk he was. She could sum him up pretty well. In this subtle antagonism, they knew each other like old friends. They were as shrewd with one another almost as man and wife. But Annie had always kept him sufficiently at arm's length. Besides... She had a boy of her own. The statute's fair, however, came in November at Bestwood. It happened that Annie had the Monday night off. It was a drizzling, ugly night, yet she dressed herself up and went to the fairground. She was alone, but she expected soon to find a pal of some sort. The roundabouts were veering round and grinding out their music. The side shows were making as much commotion as possible. In the coconut shies there were no coconuts, but artificial wartime substitutes, which the lads declared were fastened into the irons. There was a sad decline in brilliance and luxury. Nonetheless, the ground was muddy as ever. There was the same crush, the press of faces lighted up by the flares and the electric lights, the same smell of naphtha and a few fried potatoes, and of electricity. Who should be the first to greet Miss Annie on the showground but John Thomas? He had a black overcoat buttoned up to his chin and a tweed cap pulled down over his brows, 
His face between was ruddy and smiling and handy as ever. She knew so well the way his mouth moved. She was very glad to have a boy. To be at the statutes without a fellow was no fun. Instantly, like the gallant he was, he took her on the dragons, grim-toothed, roundabout switchbacks. It was not nearly so exciting as a tram car, actually, but then to be seated in a shaking green dragon, uplifted above the sea of bubble faces, careering in a rickety fashion in the lower heavens, whilst John Thomas leaned over her, his cigarette in his mouth, was, after all, the right style. She was a plump, quick, alive little creature, so she was quite excited and happy. John Thomas made her stay on for the next round, and therefore she could hardly for shame repulse him when he put his arm round her and drew her a little nearer to him in a very warm and cuddly manner. Besides, he was fairly discreet. He kept his movement as hidden as possible. She looked down and saw that his red, clean hand was out of sight of the crowd, and they knew each other so well. So they warmed up to the fair. After the dragons, they went on the horses. John Thomas paid each time so she could but be complacent. He, of course, sat astride on the outer horse, named Black Bess, and she sat sideways towards him on the inner horse, named Wildfire. But of course, John Thomas was not going to sit discreetly on Black Bess, holding the brass bar. Round they spun and heaved in the light, and round he swung on his wooden steed, flinging one leg across her mount, and perilously tipping up and down across the space, half lying back, laughing at her. He was perfectly happy. She was afraid her hat was on one side, but she was excited. He threw quoits on a table, and one for her two large pale blue hat pins. And then, hearing the noise of the cinemas, announcing another performance, they climbed the boards and went in. Of course, during these performances, pitch darkness falls from time to time when the machine goes wrong. There's, then there is a wild whooping and a loud smacking of simulated kisses. In these moments, John Thomas drew Annie towards him. After all, he had a wonderfully warm, cozy way of holding a girl with his arm. He seemed to make such a nice fit. And after all, it was pleasant to be so held, so very comforting and cozy and nice. He leaned over her, and she felt his breath on her hair. She knew he wanted to kiss her on the lips. And after all, he was so warm, and she fitted into him so softly. After all, she wanted him to touch her lips. But the light sprang up. She also started electrically and put her hat straight. He left his arm lying nonchalantly behind her. Well, it was fun. It was exciting to be at the statutes with John Thomas. When the cinema was over, they went for a walk across the dark, damp fields. He had all the arts of lovemaking. He was especially good at holding a girl when he sat with her on a stile in the black, drizzling darkness. He seemed to be holding her in space, against his own warmth and gratification. And his kisses were soft and slow and searching. So Annie walked out with John Thomas, though she kept her own boy dangling in the distance. Some of the tram girls chose to be huffy. But there you must take things as you find them in this life. There was no mistake about it. Annie liked John Thomas a good deal. She felt so rich and warm in herself whenever he was near. And John Thomas really liked Annie more than usual. 
the soft, melting way in which she could flow into a fellow, as if she melted into his very bones, was something rare and good. He fully appreciated this. But with a developing acquaintance, there began a developing intimacy. Annie wanted to consider him a person, a man. She wanted to take an intelligent interest in him and to have an intelligent response. She did not want a mere nocturnal presence, which was what he was so far, and she prided herself that he could not leave her. Here she made a mistake. John Thomas intended to remain a nocturnal presence. He had no idea of becoming an all-round individual to her. When she started to take an intelligent interest in him and his life and his character, he sheared off. He hated intelligent interest, and he knew that the only way to stop it was to avoid it. The possessive female was aroused in Annie, so he left her. It is no use saying she was not surprised. She was at first startled, thrown out of her count, for she had been so very sure of holding him. For a while she was staggered, and everything became uncertain to her. Then she wept with fury, indignation, desolation, and misery. Then she had a spasm of despair. And then, when he came, still impudently, onto her car, still familiar, but letting her see by the movement of his head that he had gone away to somebody else for the time being and was enjoying pastures new, then she determined to have her own back. She had a very shrewd idea what girls John Thomas had taken out. She went to Nora Purdy. Nora was a tall, rather pale, but well-built girl with beautiful yellow hair. She was rather secretive. Hey, said Annie, accosting her, then softly, Who's John Thomas on with now? I don't know, said Nora. Why, the does, said Annie, ironically lapsing into dialect. The knows as well as I do. Well, I do, then, said Nora. It isn't me, so don't bother. It's Sissy Minkin, isn't it? It is, for all I know. Hasn't he got a face on him, said Annie. I don't half like his cheek. I could knock him off the footboard when he comes round at me. He'll get dropped on one of these days, said Nora. Aye, he will, when somebody makes up their mind to drop it on him. I should like to see him taken down a peg or two, shouldn't you? I shouldn't mind, said Nora. You've got quite as much cause to as I have, said Annie. But we'll drop on him one of these days, my girl. What? Don't you want to? I don't mind, said Nora. But as a matter of fact, Nora was much more vindictive than Annie. One by one, Annie went the round of the old flames. It so happened that Sissy Meekin left the tramway service in quite a short time. Her mother made her leave. Then John Thomas was on the qui vive. He cast his eyes over his old flock, and his eyes lighted on Annie. He thought she would be safe now. Besides, he liked her. She arranged to walk home with him on Sunday night. It so happened that her car would be in the depot at half-past nine. The last car would come in at 10.15. So John Thomas was to wait for her there. At the depot, the girls had a little waiting room of their own. It was quite rough, but cozy, with a fire and an oven and a mirror and table and wooden chairs. The half-dozen girls who knew John Thomas only too well had arranged to take service this Sunday afternoon. 
So as the cars began to come in early, the girls dropped into the waiting room. And instead of hurrying off home, they sat around the fire and had a cup of tea. Outside was the darkness and lawlessness of wartime. John Thomas came on the car after Annie at about a quarter to ten. He poked his head easily into the girls' waiting room. Prayer meeting? he asked. Aye, said Laura Sharp. Ladies only. That's me, said John Thomas. It was one of his favorite exclamations. Shut the door, boy, said Muriel Bagley. On which side of me? said John Thomas. Which thou likes, said Polly Birkin. He had come in and closed the door behind him. The girls moved in their circle to make a place for him near the fire. He took off his greatcoat and pushed back his hat. Who handles the teapot, he said. Nora Purdy silently poured him out a cup of tea. Want a bit of my bread and drippin'? said Muriel Bagley to him. Aye, give us a bit and he began to eat his piece of bread. There's no place like home, girls, he said. They all looked at him as he uttered this piece of impudence. He seemed to be sunning himself in the presence of so many damsels. Especially if you're not afraid to go home in the dark, said Laura Sharp. Me, by myself I am. They sat till they heard the last tram come in. In a few minutes, Emma Housley entered. Come on, my old duck, cried Polly Birkin. It is perishing, said Emma, holding her fingers to the fire. But I'm afraid to go home in the dark, sang Laura Sharp, the tune having got into her mind. Who are you going with tonight, John Thomas? asked Muriel Bagley, coolly. Tonight? said John Thomas. Oh, I'm going home by myself tonight, all on my lonely o. That's me said Nora Purdy, using his own ejaculation. The girls laughed shrilly. Me as well, Nora, said John Thomas. Don't know what you mean, said Laura. Yes, I'm toddling, said he, rising and reaching for his overcoat. Nay, said Polly, we're all here waiting for you. We've got to be up in good time in the morning, he said in the benevolent official manner. They all laughed. Nay, said Muriel, don't leave us all lonely, John Thomas. Take one. I'll take the lot if you like, he responded gallantly. That you won't either, said Muriel. Two's company. Seven's too much of a good thing. Nay, take one, said Laura, fair and square, all above board, and say which. Aye, cried Annie, speaking for the first time. Pick, John Thomas, let's hear thee. Nay, he said, I'm going home quiet tonight, feeling good for once. Whereabouts, said Annie, take a good un then, but thou's got to take one of us. Nay, how can I take one, he said, laughing uneasily. I don't want to make enemies. You'd only make one, said Annie. The chosen one, added Laura. Oh my, who said girls? exclaimed John Thomas, again turning as if to escape. Well, good night. Nay, you've got to make your pick, said Muriel. Turn your face to the wall and say which one touches you. Go on, we shall only just touch your back, one of us. Go on, turn your face to the wall and don't look and say which one touches you. 
he was uneasy, mistrusting them, yet he had not the courage to break away. They pushed him to a wall and stood him there with his face to it. Behind his back they all grimaced, tittering. He looked so comical. He looked around uneasily. Go on, he cried. You're looking, you're looking, they shouted. He turned his head away, and suddenly, with a movement like a swift cat, Annie went forward and fetched him a box on the side of the head that sent his cap flying and himself staggering. He started round. But at Annie's signal, they all flew at him, slapping him, pinching him, pulling his hair, though more in fun than in spite or anger. He, however, saw red. His blue eyes flamed with strange fear as well as fury, and he butted through the girls to the door. It was locked. He wrenched at it. Roused, alert, the girls stood round and looked at him. He faced them at bay. At that moment, they were rather horrifying to him as they stood in their short uniforms. He was distinctly afraid. Come on, John Thomas, come on, choose, said Annie. What are you after? Open the door, he said. We shan't, not till you've chosen, said Muriel. Chosen what, he said. Chosen the one you're going to marry, she replied. He hesitated a moment. Open the blasted door, he said, and get back to your senses. He spoke with official authority. You've got to choose, cried the girls. Come on, cried Annie, looking him in the eye. Come on, come on. He went forward, rather vaguely. She had taken off her belt, and swinging it, she fetched him a sharp blow over the head with the buckle end. He sprang and seized her, but immediately the other girls rushed upon him, pulling and tearing and beating him. Their blood was now thoroughly up. He was their sport now. They were going to have their own back out of him. Strange, wild creatures, they hung on him and rushed at him to bear him down. His tunic was torn right up the back. Nora had hold of the back of his collar and was actually strangling him. Luckily, the button burst. He struggled in a wild frenzy of fury and terror, almost mad terror. His tunic was simply torn off his back. His shirt sleeves were torn away. His arms were naked. The girls rushed at him, clenched their hands on him and pulled at him. Or they rushed at him and pushed him, butted him with all their might. Or they struck him wild blows. He ducked and cringed and struck sideways. They became more intense. At last he was down. They rushed on him, kneeling on him. He had neither breath nor strength to move. His face was bleeding with a long scratch. His brow was bruised. Annie knelt on him. The other girls knelt and hung on to him. Their faces were flushed, their hair wild, their eyes were all glittering strangely. He lay at last quite still, with face averted, as an animal lies when it is defeated and at the mercy of the captor. Sometimes his eye glanced back at the wild faces of the girls. His breast rose heavily. His wrists were torn. "'Now then, my fellow,' gasped Annie at length. "'Now then, now!' At the sound of her terrifying, cold triumph, he suddenly started to struggle as an animal might, but the girls threw themselves upon him with unnatural strength and power, forcing him down. "'Yes, now then!' gasped Annie at length, and there was a dead silence in which the thud of heart-beating was to be heard. It was a suspense of pure silence in every soul. Now you know where you are, said Annie. 
The sight of his white, bare arm maddened the girls. He lay in a kind of trance of fear and antagonism. They felt themselves filled with supernatural strength. Suddenly, Polly started to laugh, to giggle wildly, helplessly, and Emma and Muriel joined in. But Annie and Nora and Laura remained the same, tense, watchful, with gleaming eyes. He winced away from these eyes. Yes, said Annie in a curious low tone, secret and deadly. Yes, you've got it now. You know what you've done, don't you? You know what you've done. He made no sound nor sign, but lay with bright, averted eyes and averted, bleeding face. You ought to be killed. That's what you ought, said Annie tensely. You ought to be killed. And there was a terrifying lust in her voice. Polly was ceasing to laugh and giving long-drawn ohs and sighs as she came to herself. He's got to choose, she said vaguely. Oh, yes, he has, said Laura with vindictive decision. Do you hear? Do you hear? said Annie, and with a sharp movement that made him wince, she turned his face to her. Do you hear? she repeated, shaking him. But he was quite dumb. She fetched him a sharp slap on the face. He started, and his eyes widened. Then his face darkened with defiance after all. Do you hear? she repeated. He only looked at her with hostile eyes. Speak, she said, putting her face devilishly near his. What? he said, almost overcome. You've got to choose, she cried as if it were some terrible menace and as if it hurt her that she could not exact more. What? he said in fear. Choose your girl, Cotty. You've got to choose her now and you'll get your neck broken if you play any more of your tricks, my boy. You're settled now. There was a pause. Again, he averted his face. He was cunning in his overthrow. He did not give in to them, really. No, not if they tore him to bits. All right, then, he said. I choose Annie. His voice was strange and full of malice. Annie let go of him as if he had been a hot coal. He's chosen Annie, said the girls in chorus. Me, cried Annie. She was still kneeling, but away from him. He was still lying prostrate with averted face. The girls grouped uneasily around. Me repeated Annie with a terrible, bitter accent. Then she got up, drawing away from him with strange disgust and bitterness. I wouldn't touch him, she said. But her face quivered with a kind of agony. She seemed as if she would fall. The other girls turned aside. He remained lying on the floor with his torn clothes and bleeding, averted face. Oh, if he's chosen, said Polly, I don't want him. He can choose again said Annie, with the same rather bitter hopelessness. Get up, said Polly, lifting his shoulder. Get up. He rose slowly, a strange, ragged, dazed creature. The girls eyed him from a distance, curiously, furtively, dangerously. Who wants him? cried Laura roughly. Nobody, they answered with contempt, yet each one of them waited for him to look at her, hoped he would look at her all except Annie, and something was broken in her. He, however, kept his face closed and averted from them all. There was a silence of the end. 
He picked up the torn pieces of his tunic without knowing what to do with them. The girls stood about uneasily, flushed, panting, tidying their hair and their dress unconsciously, and watching him. He looked at none of them. He spied his cap in the corner and went and picked it up. He put it on his head, and one of the girls burst into a shrill, hysteric laugh at the sight he presented. He, however, took no heed, but went straight to where his overcoat hung on a peg. The girls moved away from contact with him as if he had been an electric wire. He put on his coat and buttoned it down. Then he rolled his tunic rags into a bundle and stood before the locked door dumbly. Open the door, somebody, said Laura. Annie's got the key, said one. Annie silently offered the key to the girls. Nora unlocked the door. Tit for tat, old man, she said. Show yourself a man and don't bear a grudge. But without a word or sign, he had opened the door and gone. His face closed, his head dropped. That'll learn him, said Laura. Cotty, said Nora. Shut up for God's sake, cried Annie fiercely as if in torture. Well, I'm about ready to go, Polly. Look sharp, said Muriel. The girls were all anxious to be off. They were tidying themselves hurriedly with mute, stupefied faces. Okay, Mike, that was Tickets, Please by D.H. Lawrence. You liked it better than Odor of Chrysanthemums. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. impressed. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think I intimated that it was that Order of Chrysanthemums was a little dated and wore down the reader. But uh-huh. Yep. I probably didn't admit, reveal how much it wore down this particular reader. Oh, so. you were getting, you thought it was a slog? I just I kept wanting to find out what happened to the husband uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. It it seemed a little bit like um, the setup was great, but went on too long. Sort of, yeah. It's a little bit like Ulysses. I, I understand why certain sections are really difficult to understand, but I still don't like it. Yeah, right. And you're <laughs> starting to get impatient, and and uh, what is the the Oscar Wilde line about you, you turn the pages and the suspense of the author is excruciating. (laughs) (laughs) Good old Oscar. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So let's do our draft. I'm glad you like this one better. Uh, I'll let you go first. What is your first notable thing about tickets, please? I, I love that. This is kind of like a horror story. Mm, mm -hmm. And I love Shirley Jackson. I love, I don't like horror movies at all, but I like kind of off-screen horror. Like there, there was a film called Midsommar, um a few years ago. And there, while there is some on-screen violence, uh, most of the violence is off-screen and it's horrific. Yeah. And um, this, this kind of reminded me of it. I think they, I started to feel on um, when the, the girls are talking 
and they say prayer meeting, ladies only. This is like page six. And they, they start kind of talking to John Thomas in a gruff way. Uh-huh. I felt I had this image of picnic at Hanging Rock, the the girls who are almost cult-like. and Yeah. And I started thinking of Midsomnar, and I just got a feeling that something was going to happen to John Thomas, but I didn't suspect that Lawrence would do what he did. Yeah. It it does take a big swerve into this. It doesn't really set you up for it. It doesn't prepare you the whole way through to say, you know, where you're, you know what I mean? It's not like it's set at, at Halloween on a moonlit spooky night or something, or you're not feeling like you don't see cruelty early on from any of the women or anything. You You do feel like something's going to happen to him, but you think maybe he's, you don't, you don't suspect he's going to be attacked. <laughs> Which is very satisfying. Yeah, um, it really kind of is. And the whole it, mob part, yeah. It, it's, it's also satisfying because it's a little unfair. I mean, you know, he they're, they're, uh, they're agreeing to date him. And if, you know, it's anybody's prerogative to break up. You yeah. Know, and, you know, he says um, he hated intelligent interest. Yeah. About Annie. And he, he said this line. I was thinking like if, if this was in translation, if it was this was written in like Czech and it was translated, <laughs> I think a reader would be like, is, is this right? You're and right. Like, really? Right. And then it says, and he knew that the only way to stop it was to avoid it. The possessive female was aroused in Annie. So he left her. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I I cited the same passage as <laughs> He hated intelligent interest. It's almost like, what does she want? You know, is what she wants so uh, unreasonable? It's not like she's saying, okay, we went on this date. Now we're, we have to go steady and we have to get married and we're going to have kids and we're going to buy a house. And he's saying, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. It was just, (laughs) she wanted to take an intelligent interest in him to consider him like a person, a man. And when he senses (laughs) this, he just shears off. He hated it. He knew the only way to stop it was to avoid it. And and that's his right. That's his, so, right. Yeah. You know, right. People have the right to be judgmental and break up with people well before they, the other person thinks the relationship has run. I mean, this is just like in the test of time. But that said, when they gang up and they beat him, that makes it all the more satisfying. That, <laughs> that he, he doesn't quite deserve this. Yeah. He doesn't really deserve it. It it then it becomes more about the mob mentality, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I enjoyed. I enjoyed. Right. They strip him and like, yeah, they they won't yeah. let him leave. And it's it's. I mean, the the fact that it was written in the 1910s is astonishing. Yeah, yeah, and and that's what I like too. That this would be different if if he had, uh, you know, if he had. Uh, had killed somebody's pet or something and and they were trying to figure (laughs) out, well, how are we going to make him stop do this, doing this kind of thing? And it's something that maybe the police won't help or something. You have to take matters into your own hands. This is kind of like he's, you can see why they're sort of upset with him. You can see why they're embarrassed or ashamed or that they want to get some kind of revenge that he's been playing this power game with them. And they are, 
uh, willing to fight back, but they do get carried away. And then... Yeah, they're strangling him. Yeah, yeah. but then they also, when it's over, they're they're sheepish and you know they're they're kind of horrified but by what has happened right the girls were all anxious to be off they were tidying themselves hurriedly with mute stupefied faces it's almost like uh uh maybe soldiers after a war where they've they've you know shot up a village or something and then they're suddenly uh, mm-hmm. Wait, we're we live in civilization. What just happened there? That was not civilization. That that was something uglier and deeper and darker. Or or police after a a jail mm-hmm. cell beating or some other instance where the humanity falls and the reptilian part of the personalities takes over. It it makes the story much more interesting. That this is what's going on and he's facing it and he's kind of trying to keep his dignity which he sort of does but also that you know it's really about these young women and the way that the mob mentality has set in i mean i really got into it and i i think this is why i like this story more than order of chrysanthemums that the the characters in this are more convincing to me Mm. i think the there was a moment when my brain just had this fleeting thought that they're going to gouge one of his eyes out. <laughs> and you were you were rooting for it? <laughs> I think there was a part of me that was just like, you know what? He's been behaving this way all this time. Like, who did he think he was? <laughs> like, the men are away at this war. They're, you know, there's a scarcity of men. Like, yeah. well, you know what? Y- you play the game. You pay. Yeah. Yeah. I was rooting I was rooting for it to keep going, but in a weird kind of uh almost like an aesthetic way of of just like watching Lawrence do this. Uh and thinking, okay, he's he the gloves are off now. He's really going for it and thinking where how deep are we gonna descend into this? Uh, yeah, but but I also it it kind of hurt me in a way that he was also the the boy was also still kind of maintaining his dignity and kind of keeping his you know he was broken, but he, it was kind of horrible to see him broken, but he was also still kind of um, you know he wasn't that broken he was still kind of like hey ladies. Yeah. Yeah. Still making jokes, you know, and still kind of uh, maintaining some dignity. And I was kind of like, no, no, just take him down. Like, stop him. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't want them to kill him. But uh, oh, I didn't want them to kill him. I I, I wanted him to live and remember this day. I kind of wanted them to maim him, though. Yeah. Maim him. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, bringing up the aesthetics, that's kind of my second reason is I. You know, I love the shortness of a short story. I yeah. love Leah Davis. I mean, I, she yeah. stories yeah. too short, but I also love the the aesthetics of the the train in the beginning. Yep. Yeah, I love that too. That it's like yeah. like a roller coaster. They go on the the roller coaster, and and Lawrence has to say, you know, in truth, the tram that they all worked on was actually a lot more dangerous than this roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then, you know, he uses the word ugly a bunch. 
Ah, you yeah. Know? And impudent. Uh, Keep saying impudent. Yeah, there's like, you know, there, there's a real sense that, um, like, things are not well. I mean, people are going from place to place, and the, the people not getting out of a train on fire. What a great detail. Yeah. Because you know, it's such darkness surrounding them. Yeah. And I love that this was connected to the war and the the socioeconomic circumstance at the time that this is the 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 women are they they get this freedom and independence because they have this employment and it's a job that itself has kind of freedom built into it that you travel and you're away from your home or your home village but it also puts them into harm's way and it it opens them up to being uh preyed upon or victimized by men like John Thomas, it kind of feels like Lawrence was really identifying something that was going on during the war because of the war and the way it affected things at home. And and just that line of the drivers are men unfit for active service and that the girls are fearless young hussies. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Did we get through all three of yours? I think the third one I, I said was um, it really both stories. I started to appreciate a really good plot. It seems like there are that aspect seemed very English to me uh-huh. that they, you know, you, you have these these moments where you think it's going to expand. And instead, it's this single plot that has a few twists yeah. and ends. Right. It's the simplicity of the, the plots. Right, right. And the big part we haven't mentioned yet is when she goes on the date with him to the fair. Right. And yeah. what that meant to the two of them. And, and the way he's, you see him in action. You know, he's a little slick, but he's not really pressuring her in a way that is unwelcome. I mean, she's she kind of goes along with it as well. And you kind of see the way it develops over the evening. But then that, as we've talked about, that moment where... She wanted to take an intelligent interest in him, and that just that does it. He's done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, when I read these, I, I started thinking of uh, Lawrence as a poet because mm. they're very short, abrupt shifts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I think he, you know, that were that were quite intentional. Yeah, um, where he'd say like, like, "So he left. So he left her." Yeah, like. You know, on page four, it says, uh, and his kisses were soft and slow and searching. It's, it's almost kind of a little boring. And then the next sent the paragraph break, it says, so Annie walked out with John Thomas, though she kept her own boy dangling in the distance. Oh, right. Sort yeah, of a combination a, of the, the lyric and the plot, as you were praising before. Yeah. And then, like this, the step of that car, that tram car is her thermopylae. Yeah, right. <laughs> she can hold her own. Yeah, in case people don't know the Battle of the Three Hundred, she can hold her own against ten thousand Persians. Well, it doesn't say Persians, but yeah. <laughs> okay. So, what did these stories, as a pair, do for you? With were you surprised by what you found in these uh, in these two D. H. Lawrence stories that we've talked about? Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminded me of why we shouldn't be reading authors who are living today mm. mm-hmm. and that we should be reading more works that have 
stood the test of time. I, I read a lot of short fiction in the Paris Review and the New Yorker and other journals. And uh, I try the first three pages. And often I just think it feels like a conversation. Yeah. There isn't the artifice that I want uh, in a short story. Ah, right. I think I know what you mean, but can you yeah. explain that a little more? Just that, you know, there's a heavy emphasis on dialogue these days. Yeah. Uh, of capturing, like, what it means to be alive. There's, like, this one-to-one ratio. Of, the rhythm of dialogue is almost more important than pushing the plot along. I think yeah. pushing the plot along is kind of considered a negative. Yeah, and it, it there's a uh, sometimes you read stories and you think this is a writer who went to a dinner party and thought what yeah. we just talked about is so interesting. I'm gonna base a story around it so I can get the ideas that we discussed at this dinner party. But then when you read it, it's kind of inert. It's not yeah. the same as something that's worked up and has a. Uh, a date where they're going into this carnival and you see all of that happen and you see the, the growing relationship or, or the mob scene at the end where they're attacking the guy like, like that is fiction where it's, it's, it's sort of using a hundred percent of fiction's power. Yeah. I mean, and the ones who, you know, do put in artifice really stand out. Like I, I was reading a short story in the Paris Review by Rivers Solomon, a, a British writer. And the story just comes out with uh, the narrator saying this character is really good at lying. Mm. Like her lies are just, she finds it so easy to lie and that they're so effective. And it really like sucks you into the story. And a character that lies a lot, that is artifice. Like who lies a lot? You know, but they're weaving a story. And I, I feel like that's, there's a little less emphasis on weaving a story and more on just capturing like some zeitgeist. Mm, yeah. Right. Or some point of view or some agenda or some yeah. uh, idea of, you know, like the world is going to hell. So I need to explain to everybody how they should think about this or that. And, and it's more like a written to be like a persuasive essay than a f- fiction and I'm far more forgiving in a novel, ironically. I'll read 400 pages of a persuasive essay dressed up as fiction, but <laughs> I'm reading a 10-page short story. I want artifice. I want to be, you know, just, I want something that says, like, this is it. This is the setup. So would these stories send you back to any of Lawrence's novels? I was thinking of just taking a dive and reading, like, The Rainbow. Mm, mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, because that, like, I'm, I've read Tropic of Cancer. I've read a lot of these, like, quasi-erotic, I guess, yeah. you know, literary fiction. So you, you should go to the source. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, my guest has been Mike Palindro. Mike, thank you, as always, for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. So there we go. My thanks to Mike P. for joining me today. And of course to D.H. Lawrence, working hard. A little sweaty, a little deranged. Is that the right word? Sincere, maybe. Sweating and sincere. I hope you enjoyed that. And my thanks to Myron Tooman. You can find the full episode with Myron in our archives. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. 